This story is really not about demons. This is not really a story about Satan, although that power is there and is acknowledged. This story is meant to accentuate the power of Jesus over Satan. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. We want to at least begin this morning looking at Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 20. I mentioned last week that one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible was the passage we looked at last week where Jesus calmed the storm. That's a tremendously comforting passage to me, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. But I have to confess to you that as I studied Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, I was overwhelmed with this bizarre um, and very detailed account that Mark gives of this crazy demoniac that approaches Jesus. And I want to go on record as saying that perhaps out of all of the events in the life of our Lord, this is the most dramatic. I think it might even be more dramatic than the calming of the storm that we saw in Mark chapter 4. So I want to look at this account together, and once again, I told my wife that uh, I was going to preach on 20 verses, and she was sweet and smiled and said, okay. And then I woke up this morning and realized that uh, to do that would take me two hours this morning. So just relax. We're not going to look at all 20 verses, but uh, I do want to read all 20 verses uh, for us. And I want you to stand to your feet as I do that. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, They, referring to Jesus and the disciples and other people who were in other boats with them, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and 
No one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. Please be seated and let us ask the Lord's help. Our great God, we come before this text, and Lord, this is such a bizarre, weird text, and at the same time it displays your unrivaled power, your indisputable miracles for all to see. So Lord, we pray that as we are taken back in time, we might be taken back to this place on the shores of Galilee to see Jesus, to see His glory, to see His power even over Satan. May that encourage our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have noted time and time again, the Gospel writers all write, um, Accounts of the life of our Lord that do not contradict one another, but each one of these different accounts, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, write with a perspective and a theme that they want to address. This comes out in the way that they organize their material. This comes out in the way in which they provide certain details um, that come from maybe what they saw or what they hear occurred from reliable sources. And as we come to Mark chapter 5, we begin to see almost immediately the parallels between the stilling of the storm in Mark 4 verses 35 through 41 and the deliverance of the demoniac. In fact, the parallels are rather striking. We see that Jesus just 
tamed the storm-tossed seas, and now he is going to tame a demon-possessed man. We see that both accounts end in fear, right? The disciples are more fearful of Jesus after he calmed the storm than they were of the storm itself. And they ask the question, who then is this that even the winds and the storm, the winds and the waves obey him? The account after the demoniac is restored ends with the fear of the townspeople. So afraid of Jesus, they want him to leave their presence. Like the disciples whose fear did not lead to immediate faith, at least not outwardly and confessedly so in the, in the boat, so too the townspeople's fear does not lead to faith. In fact, it leads to outright rejection. Not only that, but you can imagine being in the boat with Jesus after the storm, seeing the calmness of the water, the normalcy of the seas, which runs parallel with after Jesus tamed this man and the eyewitnesses go back and they bring people with them and they see the, the calm composure of this crazy man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. These are immediate parallels that Mark wants to draw out. Mark wants to tell us more than just colorful details of similarities between these stories, Mark also wants to tell us something about the power of Jesus. He wants to tell us that oftentimes Jesus has so much power that it instills fear in people so that they want nothing to do with Him. In fact, John says that Jesus came to His own and His own received Him not. He was the light that came into the world and they didn't come to the light for fear that their evil deeds would be exposed. The fear of Jesus. But not only that, the authority of Jesus. Jesus, that is the Son of God in His pre-incarnate state, authoritatively with a word, brought order to the water at creation. He separated the waters. We looked at that last week from Genesis chapter 1. And what do we see in Jesus stilling the storm? He is bringing these waters back in order. He is showing His authority over them by rebuking them. Not only that, but Jesus in His pre-incarnate state authoritatively brought order out of darkness. Genesis 1 says that the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and God said, let there be light. And now we see the incarnate Jesus bringing a man who was in utter and total darkness of demons out of that darkness and into the light through the glorious miracle that he puts on display, restoring this man. I think these stories, therefore, are really less about the disciples, less about the demoniac, less about the reaction of the disciples to the storm, the demoniac to his restoration, and more about the power of Jesus. They acutely want to remind us of the power of Jesus. Such immense power that people are struck with fear to tell the very Son of God to leave their presence out of fear. He revealed Himself to be God in human flesh. Not only that, but we see in these accounts that God's cosmos is not meant to be chaotic. It is, to me it is meant to be in order. There is not meant to be storms. That's not the way God created the world. There is not meant to be demon-possessed people. That is not the way God created the world. So now, the second person of the Godhead, the incarnate Christ, is coming to the earth that He created, and He is saying, I'm going to restore all things back to order. 
taking chaos out of the world. The depths of the chaotic seas are brought back to order under King Jesus. The depths of hell, seen in the frantic and evil activity of the fallen angels known as demons, are brought back under King Jesus. This pre-incarnate Christ becomes incarnate. He brings light into the world. He exposes darkness. And that is why the Apostle John begins John 1.1 with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He brought everything into being. He brought everything into being from the beginning. And now He's coming into this world and He is restoring all things. He is fixing all things, bringing things back to order. To borrow Paul's language from Romans 11, because of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Orderliness is one of the chief characteristics of God. Being an orderly person and having an orderly and disciplined life is not just a personality trait that some people have and others don't have. It is actually a character trait of God Himself. Believers are orderly people. They're not disorganized. They're not chaotic in their lifestyle and the things that they do. And just on sort of a personal and really superficial level, I find it very difficult to work with someone who is disorderly. And here's the reason why. Because they bring disorder to everyone around them. There is a domino effect to disorder and chaos. That is part of the curse. Mark gives to us here a picture of Christ, the cosmic king, and his power to bring order out of chaos. Mark has shown us his power over the natural world, over the calming of the storm, the calming of the seas, and now he's going to reveal to us in this account Jesus' power over the supernatural realm. Yes, that's right, even over hell itself, even over Satan, even over, as we're going to see in this account, 6,000 demons in one man. That's how dramatic this account is. Whatever power these demons or fallen angels might have had or demons have today, even that power has been given to them by God in the sense that He has allowed them to have the power they have. Satan and his evil host were all created by God. They were all kicked out of heaven. And any sort of power they have is only leftover power that God allows them to retain. They distort the power given to them, but the power belongs to God. And his leash on the devil's dogs are tighter than we often think. This story is really not about demons. This is not really a story about Satan, although that power is there and is acknowledged. This story is meant to accentuate the power of Jesus over Satan. In fact, Jesus is called by these demons, as we'll see in this account, the Son of the Most High God. That is a title we will explore later in more detail. The Son of the Most High God. But in keeping with God's providential purposes for the time, though every man is not demon-possessed, every man apart from Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is a follower of the prince of the power of the air. Paul says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So everyone is considered apart from Christ, a son of disobedience and enslaved to Satan. Those realities are there. But neither the focus of Scripture generally or this passage specifically has to do with the power of Satan. The exact opposite is the case. The power of Christ is meant to be put on display. The power of Satan, and however deep and high that might be, is trumped by the power of Jesus Christ. No one can ever say, the devil made me do it. He doesn't have that much power. Jesus has power over him. That's why Luther said, the devil is God's devil. 
The devil is God's devil. I like the theological precision of the little boy who had to be pulled off his brother from his mother as the boys were brawling. And after pulling off one of the boys off the other boy, the mother said, Son, what incited you to, to, to punch your brother? Did the devil tell you to do that? And the little boy said, Well, the devil may have told me to punch my brother, but I was the one that made the decision to push him down and to put him in a headlock and to kick him in the face. In other words, that's good theology. The little boy was saying we're capable in and of ourselves to do evil things apart from demonic influence. So regardless of what charismatic people may say or may believe, this passage is not about the power of the supernatural world on the bad side as much as it is about the power of Jesus over those powers that will be subdued. Now, we've already seen Jesus cast out demons in particular. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 26, there was an unclean spirit in the synagogue on the Sabbath, convulsing, crying out with a loud voice, and it came out of him. Jesus rebuked that demon. We've seen a a general summary of this in Mark 1 verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. This was hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that Jesus cast demons out of. It was a normal thing that Jesus did. In fact, he empowered the disciples to do that when he sent them out in chapter 3. In verse 15, he gave them authority to cast out demons. But there has never been in the history of the world one event in which more demons were present than this event. No place in all of the Bible was one man more tortured by demon possession. No one has been tortured by more demons in the history of the world than this particular man. That is not only because the story indicates he was possessed for a lengthy period of time, uh, but also because of the number of demons, an entire legion of demons. And all of this has led some fairly noteworthy preachers to make the following comments. For example, John MacArthur says this, and I quote, In the biblical record, not since God cast Satan and his rebellious angels out of heaven had so many demons been simultaneously displaced by divine command. Perhaps nothing of this magnitude will ever occur again. R.C. Sproul says this, In all of Scripture, I can think of only one person whose misery rivals that of this man, and that's Job. And yet I wonder whether Job's misery, as terrible as it was, really approached the misery of this poor soul who was tormented every moment by the focused power of hell. Another commentator says, the story of the demoniac is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the entire Bible. But as I said, this story is less about the torture of the man and more about the taming power of the Son of Man. So our focus will be the power of Jesus. The other gospel writers record this event. But interestingly, although Mark says the shortest gospel and he characteristically gives the shortest accounts, he gives the most detailed account than all the other gospel writers, 20 verses. So as we look at these verses, this account of the Gerasene demoniac simply provides for us five testaments to the majestic power of Jesus over Satan. Five testaments to the majestic power of Jesus over Satan, revealing Him to be exactly who the demons confess Him to be. That is the Son of the Most High God. And I want to encourage your hearts this morning to know this. Regardless of what you're facing in your life, 
regardless of what trial you're going through, regardless of your view of politics, regardless of your view of the world and of our nation, regardless of the spiritual battles you are facing, I want you to know that in and through Christ, you can and will have victory over Satan. His power is not that great. It's real. It's real. But Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And these demons confess that. They know that to be true. They're fearful of Him. They're fearful of His power. They are more orthodox than many people in the church this morning. And I don't mean the ones here, obviously. But there are many who don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God who claim to be Christians. Not these demons. They understand who He is. So let's look at the power of Jesus over Satan. I want to encourage you with that. Five testaments to the majestic power of Jesus. Let's look, first of all, verses 1 through 5, at the impossible power of Jesus. The impossible power of Jesus. As we read in these verses, there is no human solution that can solve this man's problem. That's what I want you to see. Notice verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there are some... Textual variants that result in Mark calling this region where Jesus and the disciples passed to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where they landed as the country of the Gerasenes. Luke calls it that as well, but Matthew calls it the Gadarenes in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. There is, however, no contradiction. Because there was a town named Gadara that existed southeast of the sea, and then a little further south there was a town called Gerasa. It could not have been Gerasa where this event took place, where the Gerasenes lived, because that was three miles from the sea and its territory didn't extend to the shoreline. And as we're going to see in the story, this man is in caves along the shore, sees Jesus coming from afar and is able to meet him as he comes out of the boat. So it couldn't have been the city of Gerasa. It couldn't have been the city of Gadara either, because that existed six miles from the sea. And although it's territory extended to the shoreline, there aren't any steep hills around it and there's no caves around it where this man could have dwelt. But there was within this region a little village called Cursa, also called Gursa. It's called Cursi. You can Google it and you can even go on YouTube and look at the very caves this man lived in if you want to. Don't do that right now. Do it later, please. But these caves were located right along the shore. And so Cursa or Gursa, this small village, was where this took place. Now, the reason that Mark calls it the country of the Gerasenes is because the city of Gursa was located close by. And, and so he's just picking the capital of the area to say this is the country of the area in which this occurred. But it literally occurred in the seaside village of Cursa, where Jesus landed and casted his anchor with the disciples. Cursa was also about six miles southeast of Capernaum, which is where Jesus came from. Remember, that's the headquarters of his ministry. He crossed the western side of the sea to go to the eastern side over the five-mile journey across, but maybe the wind and stuff blew him off course one mile. And there's these hills steeply descending to the edge of the water where a herd of pigs could easily tumble and caves found throughout the mountainside. So that's where Jesus landed. 
And after making it safely to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, after the calming of the storm, presumably the next morning there's enough light for this demoniac to see Jesus and his crew approaching. We read in verse 2, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man leaves tombs where the dead are buried. He approaches Jesus immediately, and it's clear he has an unclean spirit. Now, as verse 13 will indicate, he's actually full of unclean spirits, and there's about 6,000 of them, presumably. So when Mark says unclean spirit, he's referring to the main unclean spirit that has a conversation with Jesus later on in the account. Now, I picture the disciples as they're mooring the boat Jesus is walking on land, they're anchoring the boat, and all of a sudden they look up and they see this naked guy running at Jesus, clearly with an unclean spirit, saying to themselves, what now? I mean, they had just survived the storm of their lives. They're still stunned and fearful of the power of Jesus the night before. And yet, little do they know, that question they ask themselves, who is this, is going to be answered by demons that fill this guy. This is really bizarre and strange. And I'm convinced that God has a sense of humor for allowing this sort of account to happen with the disciples. This is just as much about the disciples as it is about the demoniac. He's full of unclean spirits and a main unclean spirit whose name is Legion. This is a reference to demons, obviously. They're called unclean because they are morally filthy. They are tormenting this man, controlling this man emotionally, physically, mentally, and even sexually. These morally unclean demons possessed this unclean man. In fact, Luke 8.27 says that he walked around with no clothes on, indicating that he was sexually promiscuous. When you go back and read in the Old Testament, you find anytime the Bible talks about the nakedness of someone, even looking at the nakedness of someone could be a violation of the law of God in committing a sexual sin. Why is this man naked? Because he's running around doing things he shouldn't do to who knows what. He's also a Gentile, I believe, and I'll give evidence for that later. But he's an unclean man in an unclean region. This is Gentile region on the eastern shore. It was a Roman settlement. There were some Jews that lived here, but those weren't exactly faithful Jews. Unclean man in an unclean region. He had an unclean home. He lived in the tombs. Numbers chapter 19 says that if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven days. And the Pharisees added a whole bunch of laws to that that said if you touch the pillow of a dead person or a mattress of a dead person or you stood in their tomb, you were unclean. So by all accounts, he lived in an unclean place. And there are unclean animals around. Did you notice that? There are pigs, there are swine. An unclean animal, according to Jewish law, Deuteronomy 14.8 says, you shall not eat the flesh of pigs, nor touch the carcasses of pigs or swine. This is a Roman settlement, and there have been some who have postulated that this big herd of swine, numbering 2,000, helped feed the Roman army. So this was a source of economic stability to this region, to these herdsmen, to this whole community, even to the Roman army. But Jesus meets this unclean man with unclean spirits, living in unclean tombs, surrounded by unclean Gentiles, operating an unclean business of Roman oppression. Matthew 8.28 says that he had a companion with him, a sort of partner in crime, who ran down with 
this main demoniac to meet Jesus. Mark doesn't mention him because Mark always wants to get to the point, right? And the point is, this other man was filled with so many demons, they were incalculable. And the power they had over him was a raging power. This raging madman that raced toward Jesus was infused with the very filth of hell. In fact, the last time Jesus encountered hell in such a direct way would have been in the desert when he was tempted, when he met Satan face to face. This might as well have been Satan coming to Jesus, racing toward him. And this man was such an obvious threat socially, physically, sexually to the local citizens that they relegated him to the caves outside of the city. In fact, that was where he wanted to be anyway because he could do whatever he wanted to do, but they couldn't control him. That's the point to see. No one could control him. He was controlled with an impossible power. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. And no one, Mark says, could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces, no one had the strength to subdue him. Here's the picture, no matter what they did, it was impossible to subdue him. He was out of control. Nobody could stop him. And the only thing that spared his would-be victims was the fact that he wanted to live in isolation. Luke 8.29 says that uh, the demons would drive him out to the desert. That was the only thing that saved the village from his violence. Shackles and chains didn't work long term. He would wrench the chains apart. He would break the shackles in pieces, revealing this, his superhuman strength. Now mark it. This was a demoniac with a supernatural power, not a maniac with a psychological disorder. This was real. We may feel sorry for the local residents, and that's okay, but we should also feel sorry for this man. He was hopeless and helpless, driven by the demons. No man-made solution. You've got to give it to the people. They at least tried, right? Luke says they would guard him and chain him. They tried to help him. They tried to protect their people. But his misery is really spelled out in verse 5. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself. Always crying out and cutting himself. As people passed by those rock-hewn burial chambers, they heard the eerie screams of him crying out loud. Perhaps not at night, as he stood on the mountains, people in the village could hear him and He would keep them up at night, but better to stay up as long as he stayed away, right? He was so dangerous that Matthew 8.28 says he would take violence out on others if he had a chance. He was so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way, and he had his partner in crime with him. No one went there. But apparently, verse 5 indicates he was more interested in inflicting pain on himself in this sort of masochistic fashion Instead of entering the village, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the screams um, were cries for his soul's help and for his body's healing. This man was spiritually, physically, out of control, hopeless, helpless, only darkness. I think back to my childhood, there was a strange man, I lived in a university town, and strange man that used to roam the streets of Morgantown, West Virginia, and we called him the Yelp Yelp Man. Because all he ever said was, yup, yup. He'd walk around saying, yup, 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 yup. And uh, from time to time, he'd somehow get into WVU football 
basketball games, and if the stands weren't filled, you could see him at the top walking around saying, yep, 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 yep. Kids were terrified of him. Adults avoided him. He was a strange guy. You couldn't help feeling sorry for him. But even still, he was normal compared to this guy. This guy was violent toward others, violent to himself. And what needs to be highlighted here is this man was unable to be tamed even by the strongest of men. He was full of an impossible power to control. In fact, if if you notice there, it says uh, that no one could subdue him. He could not be subdued, the end of verse 4. That's the Greek word demazo. And it literally was used to describe the taming of a wild animal. It's used that way in James 3.7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile of sea creature can be tamed. Except the tongue, James says. This man was more like a wild beast. Perhaps he scraped and gashed himself with rocks to try and release the evil spirits. Who knows? But the result was scabs, open wounds, hideous features, infections. He looked like a monster. He was dangerous to handle because he could hurt you. He was dangerous to handle because he could pass on a disease. And I think he must have had moments of comparative sanity where he could be talked into being chained and reasoned with to some degree, but it wouldn't last long before another fit would emerge and he would wrench those chains and break those shackles to pieces. He was just like the storm-tossed water. His waves of torment bringing him to the brink of death before a mellow moment or two. But in the worst of it, he wanted to die. At other times, he was willing to receive help, but he reached a point where he wanted no help. Let's get back up to verse 3. Notice the language again. It says, no one could bind him anymore. There's a history to this, right? And verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. So the Greek uses two negatives in verse 3, translated no and not. It's ude and udice. It it forms really a double negative in Greek. But you can't see it in English. There's actually a third negative word, uketi. So you have ude, udice, ukete. It's a triple negative. The strongest of negations to express this. Let me put it to you this way. Not anyone, not at all, no, not one, could effectively bind this man. Mark stressing the point, there was no hope. It was an impossible power that overcame this man. And he had reached the point that he would receive help no longer. He had given up hope of ever being delivered. He was overcome by an impossible power that only the impossible power of Jesus could undo. He was under the spell of the impossible power of Satan. And what this story highlights, and this is what you need to see, is the impossible power of Jesus. The outward storm on the sea was nothing compared to the internal storm that was raging in this man's soul under the spell of Satan. Now before we move on in our account, I want to talk to you just a little bit about demon possession because we can't avoid the topic that's so obvious. I'll start by saying this. 1 John 3, 8 is clear. Jesus came to do one thing. He came to destroy the works of of the devil. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is going to what? Crush the head of the serpent. Because that undoes sin. And how does He crush the serpent? By dying on the cross. 
as the second Adam. So he came to destroy the works of the devil. In that sense, Jesus is a warrior. In that sense, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He rescues us out of our bondage to Satan, and He annexes our souls to the victorious kingdom of God. I think Mark wants us to see that, because if you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what was He saying? Verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. Satan's rule is over. Christ is here. Christ is here. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Christ came to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. That's the kingdom of Satan. And to place us in the kingdom of light. The kingdom of His Son. We go from the dark kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light of God's Son. So we're in a battle. The war was started by Satan. He fired the first shot in the garden. But the onslaught of God's offensive was so massive immediately after the fall that He promised Adam and Eve certain victory in Genesis 3.15. Almost moments, really only, almost, only moments after the first sin was the promise of Christ coming. I want to say this, the devil has been on the run since. Constantly retreating. At the cross, God's promise was ultimately fulfilled to remove the power of Satan. This is critical. Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, this story is about a man possessed by demons and... You're likely not possessed by demons this morning and never were, but you were in bondage to Satan apart from Christ. This is a story just as much about you and me. It's a story about the whole human race. It's a story about God's elect people. That Satan's power has been largely removed. Satan is retreating now more than he ever has. He put all of his energy into destroying Jesus. That's why you see demon possession in the days of Jesus and virtually in no other place in the Bible. His energy was all spent on trying to destroy Jesus, but Jesus destroyed him. He's whipped and he knows it. And that is why no true Christian can be possessed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit if we are Christians. John says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Christians can't be possessed by demons. But Scripture is also clear that he still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? Peter says that, 1 Peter 5.8. So Peter says you need to be sober-minded, you need to be vigilant when talking about this reality. How does Satan work today? He principally influences, listen to this, societies, nations, ideologies, because he is, after all, the angel of light. Demon possession is not as common today, but Satan still works in subversive ways. Paul is clear about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a passage you're probably somewhat familiar with. But Paul tells us in verse 14, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 
And I think a study of history will show that where the gospel has permeated a particular society, demon possession, similar to the sort of behavior we see in the gospels, pretty much goes away. But that does not mean that Satan is not still active. He is still at war within our society and really every society. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Who is behind every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God? Well, it's obvious. It's Satan. He's roaming around, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. He is therefore active in all false religions. Did you hear me on that? All false religions and all cults. He is active in. Paul says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In that context, he is uh, speaking about food that's offered to idols uh, in pagan sacrifice. And he tells Christians, you can't be involved in pagan sacrifice anymore because that is to drink with the devil. That's to eat with the devil. The devil is behind every pagan influence, every pagan ideology, every false religion, every cult. That's outside of the church. But Satan sometimes can slither in through the back door because Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so there are people who come into the church who are working for Satan, who preach false theologies and other unorthodox teachings. These are teachings that come from Satan himself. And James chapter 3 James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good character, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every practice. I talked about disorder at the beginning. Chaos, disorder, guess where that comes from? Satan. Jealousy, competition in the church, guess where that comes from? Satan. You want to know if someone's operating in the power of Satan? Are they trying to compete with other Christians within the church? Are they jealous? Do they have selfish ambition? Are they trying to assert their authority over others? Those are demonically controlled, influenced people. And they're still around. We need to be careful of them. And um, you will hear a sermon here pretty soon on a dangerous satanic ideology called critical race theory that is destroying our culture. That is influenced by Satan. And it needs to be exposed, and it will be exposed. But though we aren't individually possessed like this man, we may at times feel overwhelmed by the devil's onslaughts. But the church is on the offensive. Christ has vanquished the devil. The church militant marches on. We press onward, we press upward because 
the impossible, unbelievable power of Jesus to overcome Satan is exactly what this passage is about. Over the culture, over society, over false ideologies, over false theologies, over your spiritual conflicts, over everything. If Jesus has power over these demons and over Satan, he's king of the world. We have nothing to worry about. He possesses an impossible power. But this passage contains five testaments to Jesus' power over Satan. The first five verses really set it up. The reality that Jesus possesses impossible power to deliver this man who's under the impossible power of Satan. But now we move to the inevitable power of Jesus. We move from the impossible power of Jesus to the inevitable power of Jesus because, listen to this, no demonic spirit could stop Jesus' power once He decided to deliver this man. Jesus' power would inevitably gain the upper hand. So that account that Jesus had here with this demon was summarized in verse 2. It's now explained in more detail in verses 6-10. through 10. And here's the point. If no human solution resolved this man's problem, then no demonic spirit could stop Jesus' power. The demons know immediately upon meeting Jesus, that His power is so strong that it will inevitably overwhelm them, and so they immediately go to the negotiating table. Immediately. This isn't a match. We know we're whipped. Let's negotiate, see if we can get something out of this without being destroyed. It's desperation. And it begins with prostration. Verse 6. Look at it. And when he saw Jesus from afar, the man ran and fell down before him. This is the inevitable power of Jesus to control the demons seen in the prostration of this man. Luke 8.28 says that when he saw Jesus, he cried out. This monstrous man with wounds all over him saw Jesus from afar. He ran down the hill screaming. Likely the demons got a hold of his vocal cords And they were expressing their apprehension and fear of being in Jesus' glorious presence. They don't want to go, but get this, the man wants to go. He is already being drawn by Jesus. The power is already loosening. He doesn't have control of his vocal cords, but he does have control over his feet. And he's running to meet Jesus. And he fell down. Now, now that Greek word is proskuneo. It is, um, it's the word for not just getting on your knees, but laying on your face in humble reverence because you know you're in the presence of someone who's superior to you and you kiss their feet or the hem of their robe. That's what this man is doing with demons in him. So there's resistance on the part of the demons. They're screaming. They're being pulled magnetically by the power of Jesus. They don't want to go. The man is losing some of that power. His feet are running. The demons are screaming. The power of Jesus is inevitable. It's inevitable. And notice that Jesus hasn't spoken a word yet. All he's done is gotten out of the boat. All Jesus has to do is be in your presence to sense his power, to sense his authority. His power is more authoritative than the shackles or chains that we talked about. Jesus hasn't said anything. But now it gets really weird. 
Because this inevitable power of Jesus is seen in the prostration of this man, which symbolizes what he will become, which is a worshiper of Jesus. But then there's a proclamation. Notice verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demons know Jesus' identity better than the disciples, right? They didn't outwardly confess that Jesus is God. Who is this? They didn't say it. The demons answer, this is the Son of the Most High God. James 2.19, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's literally being fulfilled here. The demons are shuddering. This is God. This is our Creator. Matthew 8.29 says it was the demons who, who were crying this out. What are we to do with you? Now think back for a minute. Remember in Mark chapter 3 and verses 22 and following, the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of operating in the power of Beelzebul. What did that mean? That means they accused him of operating in the power of Satan. Oh, the reason you have so much power is because you're on Satan's side. I don't think the demons think that, do you? What do we have to do with you, O Son? You're not with us, O Son of the Most High. You're against us. And we're fearful. That title, the Son of the Most High God, has rich Old Testament roots. It was often used by Gentiles to describe the God of the Bible. And that's the way these demons describe God. In Scripture, even polytheistic pagan religions recognize ultimately that there can only be one true Most High God. And the demons are even more orthodox. They recognize that this one Most High God is Jesus. He is God. In human flesh. Remember in Genesis 14, Melchizedek blessed Abram, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Or 2 Samuel 22 14, the Lord thundered from heaven, the most high uttered his voice. Or Psalm 47, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. Or Psalm 78.35, they remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Jews also use this expression to describe the power and the absolute sovereignty of God. There's there's a little illustration of this in Daniel chapter 3. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, and um, he puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, obviously, But remember, he came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Nebuchadnezzar knew the power of this Most High God. And he was a pagan. So this title represents what all people know. There is really no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic. They may think they are, but... Deep down, they know there's a God. They know there's a God. And they're just as fearful as these demons. That's why they don't want to talk about Him. You ever notice that with little kids? They don't want to talk about their fears. I don't want to talk about it, Daddy. Don't want to talk about it, Mommy. Because not talking about it means it goes away. This is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus is going to cast demons out of this man. But I want you to think back to the words that He used in the storm-tossed sea. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 4, verse 39, He awoke, 
And the Bible says he rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, peace be still. That's an interesting word, rebuked. I pointed it out last time. It's the word that is used for Jesus exercising demons. There weren't demons in the sea. But Jesus purposely used that word as a foretaste of what he was going to do the next morning. He doesn't just have power over the sea. He has power over Satan. He is the son of the Most High God. It doesn't matter who it is, Satan, or what it is, water, the storm, Jesus has absolute inevitable power. And I don't hold the rather common view, by the way, that says these demons, by calling Him the Son of the Most High God, were uh, applying the methods used by self-professed exorcists in the first century who said that if a demon knew your identity and said it, then he had power over you. Or if you knew the name of the demon and said it, then you had power over him. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. This isn't a power play by the demons. They're operating in desperation and panic. They know they have no chance. Their question is, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Don't torment me. Now, this is Legion speaking, who is the spokesman of all these demons. Matthew 8.29 says, What are you going to do to me before the time? Meaning, before the time of the final judgment. In fact, uh, just flip over to Matthew 8.29 just for a moment. We've alluded multiple times to this, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. They said, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? So Matthew puts it in the plural because there's plural demons. Mark focuses on legion, who's the leader of them. And they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? The time of what? The time of the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes, Matthew 25, 41, in His glory, and all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne. And what will he do? He will cast Satan and the angels in the eternal lake of fire. Revelation 14, 11 says the smoke of their torment will go up forever. These demons are so overwhelmed by the power of Jesus, the inevitable power of Jesus, that they begin negotiating. Whatever you do to us, don't torment us. Don't judge us before the final day. Give us some more time. They know their judgment's coming, but give us some more time. This is them pleading with Jesus because of His power. But his inevitable power is seen not only in the prostration of the man and the proclamation of the demons, but also their plea. Notice verse 8. They just go on and on. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus is speaking to the unclean spirit, Legion, telling him to come out. And as he's doing this, apparently these demons are pleading with him not to judge them before the time. And so Jesus has had enough of this. And so he says in verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, now that's a key verse. By the way, Jesus, uh, this is not idle chit-chat. Jesus is not interesting interested in talking to these demons. But the reason that he asked the demon's name, which, by the way, he already knew because he's omniscient, was because he wanted the demon to say for himself what his name was because the title Legion or the name Legion was a word that was used to describe the largest troop unit in a Roman army composed of 6,000 soldiers. Technically, it was 5,600 
They included a cavalry of 120 horsemen and a detachment of other military personnel, 6,000 troops. That was this demon's name. There's many of us, legion. He wanted the disciples. He wanted the man. He wanted the people that had come over in the boats with Jesus to see the power that was controlling this man. This was not simply one demon. You remember Mary Magdalene, right? She was delivered from seven demons. And everyone said, can you believe it? Seven demons. That's nothing compared to this. This is an army of demons. Demons are part of Satan's army of death and destruction. Jesus wants to bring to mind there is an army of occupation ready to destroy anything in its path and it is all accumulated in this one man. And guess what? Jesus is going to single-handedly defeat a whole army. That's the point. Jesus is just manipulating the whole, the whole situation. Who are you? Oh, that's right. You're legion? I'll take care of you. All of you. The amazing power of Jesus. The gates of hell cannot prevail. There are various degrees of demonic control over non-believers, just as there are various degrees of Holy Spirit control over believers. To be sure, the enemy is organized, highly trained. There are a lot of demons. There are 6,000 in one man. So there's a lot of demons. But they cannot prevail. They are operating in desperation. Verse 10, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So that was the final negotiating appeal. Luke 8.31 seems to tell us why they wanted to stay in that country. They thought that leaving the country meant they would be confined to the abyss. And the abyss was viewed to be a holding place for demons until the final judgment. So not only do they not want to be judged prematurely, they don't want to be placed in this compartment known as the abyss. They want to continue to do activity But really, they just want out of the presence of Jesus. And the point of all this to see is that Jesus has the upper hand. Jesus has power to overturn these demons, this stronghold. It is inevitable. And I I really do think that when this demon said, what have we to do with you? What are you to do with us, O Son of the Most High God? You know what I think Peter muttered under his breath? I I think he said, darn right he is. But Peter was afraid to say that in the boat. Now he senses with the other disciples the power. This is not just the calming of a storm. This is someone to whom 6,000 demons recognize he is deity. The disciples later will profess their faith. But it is ironic that the demon answers for the disciples what they refuse to answer out loud in the boat. So we've seen the impossible power of Jesus. The inevitable power of Jesus. But before we leave this morning, we at least need to touch on this. Notice with me the infallible power of Jesus. I don't want you to leave this morning without understanding that whatever Jesus does in His power is pure and perfect. Because there are questions that are raised in this text by many people. And I want you to know that His power is infallible. Something really strange happens. 
in their panicked moment, verse 11 says, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. This is bizarre, but it was a quick reaction. They had to think on their feet. The first thing they saw apparently were pigs on a hill nearby. There were 2,000 of them. And they're thinking, do we want the final judgment prematurely? Do we want the abyss or do we want the pigs? We'll take the pigs. We'll take the pigs. The first thing they suggested was the first thing they saw. A great herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. Some 2,000 we know. And uh, verse 12 says, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Have you noticed the begging in this passage? There's begging throughout this passage. Begging throughout this passage. The man falls down. The demons are begging. Later on, the townspeople beg for Jesus to leave. The man, when he's restored, begs to stay with Jesus. Do you get a theme here? We are all at the mercy of Jesus. His power, His authority, everyone knows it. We are beggars. We are paupers. We are hopeless apart from the mercy of Jesus. But Jesus does what is really weird. He grants their request. Notice that, verse 13. So... He gave them permission. I love how Mark says that. Yeah, he did what they wanted. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, and they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. What a scene. These pigs diving headfirst, 2,000 of them, down this steep hill running, the sound of the herd's hoofs, The ground shaking, the splashes of water, and all the herdsmen are watching with their mouths wide open, with the disciples, with all the people. Peter would have a fit. Some have been so bold as to say this was heartless of Jesus. He let demons go into pigs. Think back to what I said at the beginning. Jesus is the creator of all things, right? He's also the sustainer of all things. This is His creation. He can do with it what He wants. Romans 9.20 Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Anything. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So the simple answer is, let me be blunt this morning, Jesus can do whatever He wants to do with His creation, and that includes pigs, by the way, who aren't created in the image of God. But there's more we can say. These herdsmen did lose a fortune, this herd was big enough to purportedly, reportedly to have fed the Roman army. They sometimes ate meat. I think as the disciples saw one by one these pigs splashing into the water, they saw the oppression of Rome going away, and they liked it, cheering Jesus on. But this is not cold and capricious sovereignty. Everything Jesus does in his power is measured. Now follow this. There are several good reasons why Jesus would do this. First of all, Jesus wanted to show the exceeding destructiveness of these demons. It could have been the demons destroying this man. could have been the demons 
taking this man into the village and destroying the entire village. Instead of 2,000 people, it was 2,000 pigs. Perspective, right? That's number one. Number two, in showing the power of the demons to destroy, Jesus was simultaneously showing His power as the second Adam to take back dominion over God's creation. Genesis 1.26, let them have dominion over all the animals. You can eat anything you want. Jesus is taking dominion. The pigs serve His purpose. What is His purpose? Get the demons out of that guy. Get him somewhere else. So number three, this man was restored to his senses and delivered, which shows that Jesus was willing to sacrifice anything, even 2,000 pigs, for just one soul. What does the Bible say? Heaven rejoices when just one soul repents, and we care about pigs? It's amazing to me to read even conservative commentators who so much as, as apologize that Jesus did this. I will never apologize for Jesus doing what He wants to do. I'll never do it. Jesus is actually showing compassion. He's not compassionless. He's compassionate. He's delivering this man. And by the way, number four, some speculate that these were Jewish pig herders being judged by Jesus for violating the law of God. And even if they were Gentile herdsmen, He was teaching them a lesson. You know why? They loved their property and they loved their money. They loved the selling and butchering of these pigs more than they loved God. They were pagans. They were materialists. And number five, the fifth reason Jesus is justified for casting the demons into the pigs is because technically speaking, Jesus didn't directly destroy the pigs. The demons did. Jesus just simply allowed the demons to go where they were hell-bent on going anyway. Now I want to say this, only in a culture of the tombs like we live in today, where people freely destroy babies and wombs of mothers, would anyone accuse Jesus of being compassionless for allowing 2,000 pigs to be destroyed? Only a society hell-bent to destroy human life would ever place a higher value on animals over humans. It says one soul delivered. We should be rejoicing. And by the way, we deserve as a society what these pigs got. We have grown fat on the abortion of human lives. It's a money-making business, and it tells mothers, you don't need to have a family, you need to have a career. Our society doesn't need children. They're an annoyance. We want money. We want power. Makes our lives easier, gives us the pleasures we want, and it goes completely against Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, and rule the earth. Jesus' power is infallible. It's without error. It's without mistake. And what God chooses to do in His sovereignty, we, we sometimes describe as mysterious and true, but He never makes mistakes. He never commits wrongdoing in His providence. God's sovereignty oftentimes is not a mystery. The reasons that Jesus allowed the, the demons to go into the pigs has obvious explanations. The great problem of anyone who questions that just reveals the great problem of our society. And it's simply this, a refusal to allow God to be God. And that's not just a problem of the society, it's a problem of the church. And guess what? The problem of the society is the problem of the church. Because the church has not been salt and light. 
Is it worth losing a friend or a reputation or a job to let Jesus be Jesus? Is it worth losing prestige, respect, by simply saying what the Bible says and let it be that? These are sobering and necessary questions. If we have the slightest aversion to Jesus' powerful action here, don't miss the fact that these demons could not do what they wanted to do unless Jesus allowed it. But it was infallible, perfect, and pure power. Just as it is infallible, perfect, and pure power that sends people to hell. God has provided by His grace a means of salvation through Christ. And the Bible nowhere says that God's election is unfair. Romans 9 is clear. God is fair. God is just. We don't question God. We don't question what God does. We don't question what Jesus does. What He does in His power is right. It's good. So the next time we experience something in our lives that we don't understand and we blame God. Nothing is God's fault. He ordains all things, but He is pure in His power. He is infallible. He is without mistake. Here was a man controlled by demons for years, delivered. And here are people who have their livelihoods taken away from them because they love money and they need that taken away because that's what will humble them and maybe bring them to Christ. We're going to see next week the amazing impact of what happens in this story, part two. It's unbelievable. You think the man being delivered on the spot from all these demons from hell itself was unbelievable? You've not seen anything until you see how changed this man was and what he did for the Lord Jesus Christ after. It's an amazing, dramatic account. May it cause us to lie prostrate before Christ this morning, to recognize Him for His sovereignty. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're outside of Christ. You're not possessed by Satan, but you are controlled by Him and in bondage to Him. You know that. You want delivered. I just want you to know that only Jesus can deliver you. He can free you. You repent of your sins, you place faith in Him, you trust in Him as your only Savior. He will grant you eternal life. He will deliver you from your bondage to Satan. He will bring you into the kingdom of light. He will restore you. He will make you whole. He will make you a follower. He will protect you and Satan can never harm you again. But if you choose to stay in your sin, you will run off the steep edge of life and enter a Christless eternity. And you will have no one to blame but yourself. Because God's power is pure and infallible. And He has provided a means of escape from His judgment. But He calls out for sinners to come to Him. And we would beseech you to come to Him this morning if you haven't. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we are overwhelmed with the power of King Jesus. And uh, Lord, just His mighty, mighty miracle here of delivering this man. In an instant, this man was freed from all of these demons. 
It's hard to imagine there is a greater miracle that Jesus performed than this. Aside from the resurrection, this demonstrated His power over hell itself. That gives us such tremendous hope this morning. So Lord, we pray that as we seal these truths in our minds and as Your Holy Spirit impresses them upon us this afternoon, that we might be prayerful, that we might be more obedient to King Jesus, more submissive, more humble in His presence, more willing to serve, more grateful, not prideful, allowing You to be God, knowing that You are pure. Your power is an impossible power. It's an inevitable power. It's an infallible power. It's such a strong power. So we thank You for our worship. We pray now as we sing this hymn of benediction, Lord, that um, Your grace might go with us. Lord, that Your Spirit might be with us. Help us to focus on the words of this hymn. We pray these things in Jesus' name.